Luciano at St. John's University. And uh, we, we talked a couple weeks ago, and it was such an interesting conversation. I thought, hey, you'd be a perfect podcast guest. Great. Well, happy to be here. Happy to do it. I like doing podcasting. I've done a couple of different podcasts over the years. But. Right. I checked out those. The, the names of those again? We'll, uh, we'll in the Bin. In the Bin was my uh, podcast I did for years with a number of different people from the, uh, uh, the international debate community, British parliamentary debate community. We had lots of different guests on. And that, that podcast ran from, I started with George Fitzpatrick, who's at the University of Vermont now. He and I started it. Then we got involved a lot of um, different debate people from around right. uh, the U.S. and around the world. And that ran for many years, but all the archives are up at sophist.nyc slash in the bin. Okay. We'll put the link Or sophist.nyc. It depends on how you pronounce it. Some people say sophist. I don't know if it was that one or your uh, more recent one, but I really liked the intro. Oh, the Sophistan one? I think with the, so. Yeah, with the yeah. tyrannical music. And the, yeah. yeah, I like that one too. I need to do more with that one. Was that your voice on there? Mm-hmm. I thought yeah, so. that's yeah. me. That was me. I do it all myself now. It's kind of like, I mean, it's nice to have a group of people, but it's also nice to produce on your own. Yeah. Um, more personal. Yeah, yeah. And also, you just kind of like just do it yourself when you have time. You don't have to arrange any big Skype call or anything. True. Because, you know, life gets in the way. You're like, you have five people you're working with. If somebody has, like, their kid gets sick or something, you can't record. So you right. got to reschedule. Everybody's got to reschedule. So. Or ballet practice. Like or ballet that. practice, something <laughs> like that. Or, or somebody gets sick or they got, you know, they get a Tinder date or whatever. They get drunk. Who knows? You never know. Five times the variables there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Exactly. Well, uh, beyond your, your podcast and your involvement in the international uh, debate organization mm-hmm. there, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into teaching. Okay. Uh, I uh, went to my degrees. I got a bachelor's degree from Texas A&M University. After that, I taught high school for a number of years. And that's where I first started teaching public speaking, was at the Texas high school level. Um, I came in at a time when the state of Texas had changed their requirements for high school graduation to for a one semester, which I think might be a year now. I'm not familiar with the Texas education law anymore. Uh, a one semester requirement for public speaking right. was passed by the state legislature. And so that meant uh, it was kind of a cool thing because Texas high schools had to hire all these communication right. professionals to teach public speaking and interpersonal group. Com- it was basically the basic course, mm-hmm. as we all know, that course from the university level is, is taught as a graduation requirement in all Texas high schools. Right. So that was an interesting time to teach there. Um, I did that for about five years, left that job. And then I took a position at the University of Rochester in upstate New York, mm-hmm. um, right across the water from Toronto up there. And I don't know why I'm pointing up, but, you know, north, whichever <laughs> way north is. Um, and then I, I instructed debate there as an assistant debate coach for um, about three years. Okay. And um, during that time, I got a master's degree from Syracuse University in the rhetoric and comm studies uh, department. Um, and then after that, I went to the University of Pittsburgh and did a PhD in communication at the University of Pittsburgh, and I finished that in 2009. But in 2007, I was hired here at St. John's as a professor, and I've been working here ever since. And uh, we get a steady diet of public speaking with the way this university is arranged, the way our department functions. So if you work here, you have to teach it. It's like not, it's going to be one of your courses. There's no way out of it. I couldn't remember. Is it part of the core curriculum? It is. Yeah. It is part of the core curriculum. The core curriculum here is um, very heavy. It's high. Uh, I want to say it's almost 60 hours. Oh, wow. 
It's really high. I don't think that, that might not be accurate. They're trying to get it down to 40 something. It might be in the 50s, but there's a lot of requirements here being a Catholic university, you know, theology mm -hmm. and philosophy and kind of the old school kind of liberal arts of these, um, the queens of the humanity disciplines kind of requirements. Mm -hmm. um, and that's fine. I think the conversation is about what serves the students best. So there's a bit of a debate. I don't know what's going to happen with that. I'm not an insider, but they're trying to do that. But public speaking will always stay in the core curriculum. And every student here is required to take public speaking to graduate, regardless of what college they're in. It's not just liberal arts students, but that's awesome. everybody. Yeah. You know? So um, some of them will take, because of the way the university organized, we have a, a department of professional studies, a college of professional studies. Mm -hmm. And they have a public speaking class over there that a lot of the professional study students will take instead of ours in liberal arts. But that's just kind of a holdover from how the university used to be divided. Students can take ours or that one and it'll count. Okay. But it's a separate department. That The person over there who does that doesn't um, uh, deal with us or, or, I mean, they're friendly, but they're not part of this department. They don't do what we do. Right. They kind of do their own thing. So do you, what, what types of classes do you teach? Just public speaking or you teach other types as well? I teach public speaking and then I've taught rhetorical criticism, modern rhetorical theory, debate, and argumentation. It's two separate classes. A lot of times people, argumentation and debate is one class. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought we should separate that here. Because okay. I think they're two different things. And um, I think the debate class is much more of a study of the function of debate in society and how to do it well. Right. And argumentation is the theoretical kind of side. So debate is like the practice side. And argumentation is like how do we theorize argument? How do we do it well? How do we understand whether an argument's happened or not. I can see the value of splitting yeah. those up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, what else have I taught here? I think that's it. Okay. That's it? That's I think so. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah I mean, I've, I kind of would like to teach an ancient rhetorics class, but yeah. I mean, that's all. I, I don't really... Public speaking is pretty cool. You can kind of do whatever you want with it. So I'm never bored yeah. uh, with that because I can always just do something weird. And, What's your favorite part about teaching it? Um, hmm, that's a pretty good question. There's lots of lots of good things about it. Uh, I think you're never sure what the students are gonna say mm -hmm. or what they're gonna do. I give them a lot more freedom than I think a lot of people would be comfortable with. So like any topic is fine, anything right. at all. And I mean, I've gotten some stuff that that made people kind of, um, you know, a little uncomfortable in lots of different ways. And so we just kind of talk about that say, well, look, you know, this is kind of real-world stuff. Right. So I kind of let them drive the class quite a bit. I don't have any restrictions or anything. I know a lot of people will say no speeches on abortion, no yeah. speeches on raising the drinking age to, uh, lowering the drinking age to 18 or whatever. But I'm fine with all that. It, it can, all of them can be done well. Well, any controversial topic, I mean, mm -hmm. if we can't talk about it even in that control of a setting, where, yeah. where can we? Right, yeah, it. yeah. And I mean, it's like not doing anybody's favors to not give them practice talking about abortion when, I mean, just last year we had the Brett Kavanaugh Supreme Court thing, and that was a, a, a topic related to that, was the abortion law and whether that's going to stand with Kavanaugh on the court, with Neil um, Gorsuch and all these uh, conservative judges. Right. So you're not doing your students a service if you say, well, we can't talk about this kind of stuff. Right. Because uh, they're going to have to talk about it in daily life and express, I mean, that's how democracy works. You need lots of people talking and sharing their opinion, not just a few people who you think are smart. Right. That's not democracy, that's oligarchy. Right. So is that what you, at the end of the semester, if a student is able to come out with anything from your public speaking course, it would be 
to communicate their ideas better. I would hope so. I would want them to have, in my mind, now we just met somebody, we just went to Dunkin' Donuts. And uh, they're, <laughs> they not, they're, not, they're not sponsoring yeah. this video. I wish they were, God, can Yeah, you right. <laughs> uh, we don't have no sponsor. We'd have donuts um, too. <laughs> yeah, well, that would, yeah, that would be the least of our joys. <laughs> right. Um, uh, we trained to a student in line at the, she was a public speech Oh, student. okay, yeah. And so she said the thing I think most students get out of the class if it's done well, which is, uh, I really miss your class because it got me thinking about lots of different creative stuff, but I have a presentation today and so I'm thinking about your class a lot. And I'm like, okay, that's the that's the function of the public speaking course in core curriculum, which would be give the students tools they can use that would literally apply to every class they take. Right. So when their English professor or their science professor says you're gonna give a presentation, they know how to do that. Right. Because as a freshman in their first two semesters, we try to limit it to the first two semesters. I think what ended up happening is the first four semesters is when Students should take public speaking. It doesn't make any sense to take it your last semester as a senior. Right, you've already taken if it, all. If the model is a service class, then what are you right. doing, right? right? I mean, it still has value, but the the hidden value is it get, that uh, curriculum will get replicated across their entire four years, mm -hmm. or five years, or six years, and Wilder style, you know, kind of. But um, they, um, they have a chance to reinforce those principles many times. So I think that's one of the most important practical, actual results is that they have this thing that they can use in other classes. But for me, I want them to have confidence in expressing their opinions mm -hmm. based on their life experiences and based on the things that they've seen and know and that they've read. Right. Because a lot of people don't have confidence. So I can't comment on this, I'm not an expert. And that's not, in democracy you need lots and lots and lots of people's opinions, not expert opinion. Right. Lots of, demos, you know, the people. So you need lots of different opinions and uh, they don't have to be good or persuasive, they need to be expressed. Uh, and so giving them a confidence to say, look, you can speak, literally speak on any issue. I'm very sophistic in that way. Yeah. Like I can teach you to speak confidently on any issue. This is what Gorgias would say in ancient Athens. Uh, I like that a lot. And so that's what I try to do is I want you to speak confidently on any issue that you come across. Well, because I feel like that, at least for me, if, if there's a new issue or something that I'm not as confident or don't know a lot about, mm -hmm. when you start to come up with your own point of view on it is really when you hammer out what your point of view is. That's it right. Like. Yeah. That's the other thing that's kind of important about public speaking is I don't think we think of it as an epistemology, an epistemic device. I think we think of a lot of people teach public speaking, all the textbooks that are out there, you know, the Lucas, the Beattie, all the different ones, with, the, with a couple of exceptions maybe, um, assume that you're going to go elsewhere to find your information. Right. And the speech is not going to generate the information. So. I always encourage my students to give a speech about something they don't know anything about, but they're curious about. Because as they speak about it, they'll generate ways of knowing about it. That so, then will encourage them to go read other things or listen to other things. Right. And then they'll speak it again. So speaking about something uh, encourages you to think about it in a different way, which means you learn something about it. How much instruction do you give around research then? Very little. Yeah. Uh, we talk about, um, so my understanding of rhetoric is that the audience is the measure mm -hmm. of whether speech is good or not. So we talk about evidence in terms of that, but I don't really, I don't like the term evidence. I think it gets a lot of, we're in a hyper-scientistic society where we won't believe something is true unless science confirms it. So I have a great story I tell in this where I was having lunch with a, another professor and she's like, hey, I just read that chicken soup makes, scientists say that chicken soup makes you feel better if you're sick. And I'm like, yeah, but we already knew that. 
Right. She's like, but but science says. <laughs> so it's like we live in this world of falsehoods or like the platonic cave of shadows until the scientists confirm that our life experiences are valid. Right. And I, I hate that. I think that I think that scientists see those kind thing, of stories all the time. Like, hey, here's yeah. this thing that you already knew. Yeah. And scientific thinking and scientific approaches are seen as the only valuable discourse. Right. And then you have incredibly popular figures who have millions of people watching them, reinforcing this, like Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson, mm -hmm. who do a huge disservice to democracy and a huge disservice to critical thought by saying science is the only way to solve our problems. A scientific mind is the only way to approach problems. Evidence is the only way to reason. These are, this is patently false. There are plenty of different ways to, to, um, to reason and think through problems. Right. So when we talk about evidence, we talk about proof in the Aristotelian sense. Mm -hmm. And then we also talk about narrative fidelity. These are all type, evidence is, I mean, that's there, that's in play. Mm -hmm. But it's not the only way one can get assent from an audience and say, yeah, that, that is probably what we should do. So, I mean, scientific thinking is going to help you at your kid's PTA meeting when the school's about to cut orchestra and band and football and everything your kid likes about school. <laughs> like, coming in with scientific data isn't going to help. You need to, like, really pull on the heartstrings, really get people to understand that you're angry, really get them to feel like they're making a bad decision. Well, you I'm not really sure if I have them. a scientific uh, stat to back this up, but right. I think emotions are why people make decisions. Yeah, it is. It's a big reason why they do it. Yeah. And identification, too, like the Burkean piece. We talk about that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And Kenneth Burke's ideas about what rhetoric is is saying, uh, we are pretty much the same because our motives are the same. So therefore, our attitude about something should be the same. And that's kind of like Burkean rhetorical theory in a nutshell. So if I can convince you our motives are similar mm -hmm. enough, then you're going to be like, oh, since our motives are similar, I should probably think or act like you do or believe like you do. Right. And that, that happens on a level beyond, um, you know, three books, two peer-reviewed articles, two sources from the microfiche. Like, oh, yeah. It's a real disservice to students to have these kind of research requirements, I think, and not have the serious discussion about how, like, your best evidence from the best researcher in the world on this topic will be dismissed by the audience as fake news. Mm -hmm. unless you can make that connection of identification with the audience that they would be the kind of people who'd want to listen to and believe this kind of evidence. Right. I mean, hard evidence is not, uh, it actually can get in the way a lot of times. It just leads to shouting matches. Like, you think about the anti-vaxxer movement. That's a perfect example. Right. Like, how we get into these, like, non-progressive shouting matches where we just call each other idiots. It's like, well, I have a right to do with my kid what I want. Well, you're a moron. You're hurting public health. I mean, and that's it. Seems like a lot of our... <laughs> Sticking points nowadays just comes down to that, like mm -hmm. both sides just yelling at the other. Yeah, it's because we have a poverty of practice in persuasion, right. which is an alliteration. I didn't mean it to me. Poverty <laughs> of practice and persuasion sounds good, but um, the uh, we don't we always think about facts as being the end point of any good speech. Facts and research and hitting people with a big bat. Right. Of, I always feel like a lot of people feel like that's the role of facts in speech. Is like, I don't know the show, but you know the show Walking Dead? Mm -hmm. There's a character on there who has this big bat with a barbed wire around I haven't seen that yet. I haven't seen the I, show. I don't know, the show. I don't know who this that, character yeah. is, but I see him with that bat and the leather jacket. I'm like, that's what people think facts are. <laughs> a big bat with barbed wire on it that I'm going to hit you in the face with. Right. And that's going to end our confrontation. It's going to end our disagreement. Uh, but facts are a starting point. If you find facts, you're like, wow, these need to be communicated. Mm -hmm. This is great information. Okay, that's the starting point for a speech. That's not the ending point where you're like, okay, I'm going to get them to believe me because I have these facts. No, no, no. I have these facts that are going to help them See that there's something me. there. Yeah, right. These facts are going to help me get them to where they need to be. Right. And that, I mean, we just have it flipped. 
where it's like it is a fact that I mean the audience is like predisposed to dismiss that or question that. they automatically will become critical about that like, where did it come from the New York Times oh you mean the failing New York Times you right. mean the, yeah. the liberal New York Times I mean we're well equipped to dismiss any and all information that comes our way right um, so that can't save us which I mean to have a healthy dose of criticism is healthy mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I think if you throw something out there and then sort of pat down the criticism by mm -hmm. You know, we are we have the same motive. Yeah, we're the same. Yeah, we are all in the same boat. Right. And we can't we ignore this information at our peril. And we need to critically think about what's being presented to us. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just like you. I mean, that's kind of like the rhetorician's calling card. It's like, hey, I'm just like we do the same thing. Right. I'm like you. <laughs> we're both in sales or whatever. Yeah. I just you know I do this all the time. And I think it's a useful way to get people to say, yeah, you are kind of like yeah, we do have a lot in common. And then they're much easier to approach with things that they would normally reject if you're like, hey, idiot. You <laughs> Here's know. my big bat. <laughs> right. Here comes the bat of truth, the bat of facts. So you, uh, I remember us talking about you, you don't give any sort of guidance at all on topic selection no. or speeches. Mm -hmm. Not even to the point to say uh, we're doing a persuasive speech. No, no, I think that's harmful to you. It's a weird thing. So I think when we teach our students that there are speeches like informative, persuasive, how-to, mm -hmm. ceremonial. Um, this is, first of all, this is like a bizarre interpretation of Aristotelian theory. We can get to mm -hmm. that if we have time, okay. but I'll table that for now and say, um, when we teach our students that there are speeches that their duty is to inform and persuade, let's just take that division. Uh, we're setting up our students uh, for complete failure in our Republican government, a democratic Republican order. Mm -hmm. Some all are Republican, right? Uh, which is when a public figure comes out and says, I'm just informing the public. Like when Attorney General Barr says, I'm just informing people about what the law is. Like he's offering an interpretation. Mm -hmm. He's trying to persuade us. And part of his persuasive toolbox is to say, as a government official, it's my duty to inform you. Now, if you've set up your students to think there's informative and persuasive and never the two shall meet, they'll be like, oh, well, this is information. He's not persuading me. Right. And that immediately hamstrings them. Uh, to be involved in public democratic, critical democratic discourse, or you know, the perfect citizen, or whatever people imagine they're creating out there in the public speaking class. Right. Very harmful. I always say that that's part of your persuasive effort. If you want to say to the audience, I'm here to inform you, that could be the persuasive move, right. you know, par excellence, right, in a lot of cases. Or a ceremonial speech. Ceremonial speeches are often persuasive speeches. Well, I would say all ceremonial or all epideictic speaking is persuasive because it's like, this moment is important. This is why the Fourth of July matters. This is why da da da, da or whatever ceremonial thing. Right. This is why wedding marriage is important. This is why this couple should be like a best person's speech or a eulogy. Mm -hmm. I mean, most of our students will speak in their life. They will be performing a eulogy or a uh, best person's toast right. uh, at a wedding, and that they might do a little bit more than that, but that's probably going to be it. Uh, but to think of these speeches as not persuasive, they constitute our values in our society. Like Every time you hear them, it's like, what does it mean? To, like a eulogy is always the question, what does it mean to have a good life or to have lived a good life? Mm -hmm. We're going to hear about this person's life. This is a good life. This is someone who we admire and we miss. And the reason we miss them is because they embodied and lived all the things we value as a community. Right. Uh, marriage, same thing. It's like, this is an incredibly important relationship. Like we, we uh, every marriage you go to and hear these speeches you are remarrying the concept of marriage in a symbolic way, mm -hmm. I would say. So I think that playing with that and showing people there's no hard and fast distinction, instead of teaching it like it's like, 
this like modality taxonomy of modality it's like i think it's incredibly harmful to teach like that because you're really 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 not giving the students the ability to say oh that's a persuasive move oh that information is suspect like i mean even the best informative speeches are like this information is important which is a persuasive move right you need to know this like it's time to evacuate for the hurricane here's where to go and what to do and when the governor's office does that of your state um, and you listen, it's informative, but they also want you to get out. They want you to leave. They don't want it to be a choice. Right. right? Well, so. I mean, if you think about it, if, if you're giving, if you're informing on something and at the end of it, then you've persuaded someone yeah. to think about it differently than you were going to inform them, mm -hmm. you didn't succeed. So right. that's why it is a mix of yeah. the two. That's exactly right. Yeah. I think it's like, I think those, um, I mean, I think those categories are just a weird interpretation of. Aristotelian theory that there would be these hard and fast distinctions between forensic, epideictic, and deliberative oratory as he spells it out in the rhetoric. Right. I don't know where it comes from. I mean, it would be fun to do the, the research. If you look at old textbooks, public speaking textbooks, or argumentation textbooks from the late 19th century, early 20th century, they do not have that distinction that you'll find in Stephen Lucas, in the BBNBB, in the mm -hmm. Osborne, uh, whatever public speaking book you're using. So those recent. I mean, those distinctions are like chapter seven, informative, <laughs> chapter eight, persuasive, chapter one, the ethics of public speaking, chapter two, outlining. It is like a, um, it's like looking at those weird um, dissected car engine pictures that you see in the car engine owner's manual where they right. have all the parts flying out of it. And I'm like, that doesn't help you understand how to drive the car. Right. That shows you how all the pieces of the engine fit together. And although that is interesting, that will not help you drive the car in any way that I can imagine. <laughs> uh, but that's what we have. But if you go even back to like the 1950s and the 1930s and look at like Alan Monroe's public speaking book, which is one of the best ones, I think it's out there. 19, went through several editions, 1930, 1940, I have all of them. I actually found a 1960 edition of Alan Monroe's book at a used bookstore in New Orleans when I was there. Oh, wow. You know, last spring, and I was like super excited because I didn't even know, I had a co-author, I'm sure he had died by then. So I'm not sure, but everyone knows Alan Monroe because somewhere in your public speaking textbook, maybe not in the modern ones, Monroe's Motivated Sequence. Mm -hmm. We all know this, right? Yep. His whole textbook is not, here's how to speak and here's my take on it. It's all written like the Motivated Sequence is the only way to put a speech together. Now, that's very interesting. He, he talks about speeches to inform, persuade, and to, and to admire, but it's all done with the Motivated Sequence. Right. And that's just a weird thing to encounter if you're like, well, I thought we were teaching modalities. Well, Alan Monroe is like, no, I'm teaching method. And when you want to address these particular types of causes or exegesis for speech, mm -hmm. here's how to use the motivated sequence to meet those demands of the exigence. Well, it definitely seems like... It's like a reversal of what we would do today. Well, it seems like the only time you hear about Monroe's is when you're talking about persuasive exactly. speeches. Exactly. Yeah. He's got, he's got a chart in every version of his book about like how to do a ceremony, how to do a wedding toast using the motivated sequence. I mean, wrap your head around that. Like, it's only in the persuasive chapter you'll even have a mention of the Monroe sequence. Right. But you could teach all the entirety of a semester of public speaking all using only Alan Monroe's idea of the motivated sequence. And we are so locked into our um, dedication to these like very stale, very dead um, modalities that we're missing a lot of practice that's not only good for the student. You'll get better speeches you want to hear, which is a very practical kind of selfish mm -hmm. goal. But you're also going to prepare them for a, a life lived in words, which is what democracy requires of us. Right. Reading, writing, listening, like podcasts. Oh my God. Like people are like, oh, public speaking is not 
useful anymore. No one's giving speeches. The Lyceum circuit went. You, you can pay if you're a rich person. You can pay a lot of money and go to the Chautauqua uh, Institute, upstate New York, not too far from here, about five hours from here, yeah. and spend the summer up there listening to speeches. Uh, but TED talks and podcasts seem to invalidate all of that. Like we live a life of words. That is still how we. There's not a big difference between us and the Athenians. We still listen to each other and listen to good speeches that are move us, and we say, "Wow." We're like, wow, did you hear this? Did you, like, ask your public speaking students, do you watch TED Talks? They're all going to raise their Everybody hand. does, yeah. They love it. Yeah. And they, they will see absolutely no connection between what you're doing and the TED Talk. <laughs> because guess what? There is no connection because it's stale and it's like, the message is the same from all undergraduate speaking. This is a speech I had to make for a class for a grade. And that's the thesis of every undergraduate speech. Unless you move out away from these, like, um, these anchor points, which are not healthy or helpful. So you must really get a variety of speech topics and approaches. I do. And you um, don't even... Uh, weird stuff, man. Like, And it's stuff I would never know about, but when the speaker gets into it, the students are like, yes. They, they visibly react because mm -hmm. it's hit a nerve with them. Right. <clears throat> They're all expecting to hear like why marijuana is, is should be legalized. And according to Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, marijuana is... that. I mean, that's what they're expecting is this very dry, mm -hmm. very fake... Um, speech designed to persuade no one yeah. or to inter interact with no audience it's designed to interact with the point-based rubric of 17 things to look for right uh, that's horrific to me and such a wasted opportunity um i think uh so they'll, they'll and they'll nod and, but it does lead to weird instances like a really short story uh i when before i got tenure you know you have to be evaluated as a teacher and we had a brand new dean who had just been hired uh, this guy, Mike, he doesn't work here anymore. Great guy. Mm -hmm. uh, he, I think he's over at Queens College now. I kind of lost track of him, but he's a really, really cool guy. And he was coming to evaluate me, and I didn't know. I was like, is this a new dean? What's he going to be like? Because normally the deans pop in. They watch you for 10, 15 minutes. They leave because they're busy, and they can kind of get a sense of, like, are you doing your job from that? Mm -hmm. He stayed for the whole class, but it was a speech day. And I'm like, look, I'm sorry. We're just doing speeches, but after each speech, we kind of talk about them a little bit. So maybe you can see. He's like, it's going to be fine. And so he goes and sits down, and, on this, and it's like, first, new class, I don't know these students. It's their first speech. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, it's time for you to go. And this guy, Andre, gets up, and his speech is about bronies, which are uh, men in their 30s or 40s who dress up like My Little Pony, collect <laughs> My Little Pony, and wear the shirts for eight- or nine-year-old girls, the pink shirts and stuff, and they celebrate the magic of My Little Pony. And they call themselves bronies. They wear makeup and dye their hair like the bright colors of My Little Pony. And right. they, they do all this community service and stuff. And I was just like, I wonder what this guy thinks about like what I'm teaching in here, right? <laughs> yeah. It was a good speech. And everyone had all these questions about, are you a brony? And he's like, no, but I'm sympathetic to their cause. And like, and what do you, why do you think, this seems really weird to me. Don't you think that they're like child molesters and all this? And he's like, no, no, no. Here's the evidence. They do. They raise this much money for community service. Mm -hmm. They do all these outreach projects. It's a really valid kind of club. It's just a little weird. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah. I mean, uh, he, and then afterwards, he left. You know, he left after about forty-five minutes. So I, and then a couple weeks, I got his evaluation. He said I did a great job. But then I ran into him at a meeting a couple weeks later, and he's like, "Yeah, so you know, I'm meeting. You know, we we're talking about the university. There's a pause, and he was like, so." Um, Bronies, very interesting. <laughs> so this is the kind of stuff I get. I get. But hey, you remember that? I mm -hmm. mean, if you got up there and gave a stale speech about whatever. Well, I went and watched a documentary about bronies because I was like so fascinated, right, by the speech. So this is about as real world as it gets. When the when people are like, I went when students are like, because of what this other student talked about, I went on Wikipedia and read something about this person. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's great. Like this is what, this is the normal functioning of uh, democracy based on the sharing of opinions. Right. Which I don't understand why this isn't obvious to everyone that this is the way things. I mean, it's just it'd be bizarre to me that you'd want to rely on only expert discourse or only peer-reviewed articles. That just alienates people, makes them feel like they shouldn't talk. Right. I think we're in a confidence-building business to increase the amount of words in the air. That's well, what I think teaching books mean. And may the best ideas win. Sure. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, sometimes they don't, right? That's right. What, I think that's what terrifies everybody. But I'd rather have that um, cacophony right. uh, and people being a little paralyzed that way. So I better go figure out which, which one of these speeches is best, and they go and start to look at other stuff. Because right. that's what happened in the classroom. I see this modeled because everyone's freely speaking about whatever is interesting to them. And students might say, well, I don't know if that's right. And then they go and look it up. It's not a requirement of the class. Well, it's, and then it's, they bring it back and say, I looked up the stuff and he's right about Abraham Lincoln or whatever he talked about. Or to me, it's interesting. Or, right. When you, you, know, yeah. well, when you hear something that you're not expecting and it's not the perspective that you're even expecting, mm -hmm. it almost it gives you a responsibility whether you feel like you are going to accept it or not, but there's some inkling in you that, hey, I need to go figure this out. Sure, right. It bothers you when you're yeah. like, there's someone who's thinking something a lot differently than I'm thinking about yeah. the same thing, or I've never thought about that before. You've almost got to reconcile that sure. for yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, which which world would you rather have? The world where people are paralyzed because there's 18 different voices saying what we ought to do, and they're like, oh, I don't know how to get involved in this. I'm going to go investigate these right. different things. Or a world where you have two sides two incredibly highly educated experts, and those are the only two people authorized to speak. Right. Uh, and you just watch them bounce back and forth on CNN or something. That's not democracy. Right. Not at all. Well, that's kind of the downfall of party politics. Yes. Yeah. right. Well, yeah, right. Very polar. Sure, right. And people feel like these are the only discourses in town. Right. You know, expert discourses that align with, I mean, it's, it's, it's getting to the point of ridiculousness. Yeah. But I feel like we're on the front line of like, you know, uh, what kind of discourse do you want to hear in 20 years? should be the question you ask yourself every morning before you go into your public speaking class. What do I want to hear on the right? Because the students you're teaching now are going to be the people governing public discourse and participating in it, writing it, making it. Mm -hmm. They're going to be on the television. They're going to be writing it. They're going to be producing it. What do I want public discourse to sound like 20 years from now? Well, so but along that line of thinking, it's, it's changing too. The, the podium that you're standing at may be that's behind right. a screen. That's and right. We're talking about mm -hmm. you teaching a hybrid course. Now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so I teach them out. We make YouTube videos and we make podcasts like this. Mm -hmm. uh, and I say, think about, I mean, it makes you think about audience differently. And it makes you think about speaking differently. But I found the old um, uh, classical Roman arrangement works pretty well for these kind of like one-off podcasts about here's something you should be interested in or into. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're sort of pushing the audience to make a judgment. And that's what the old Roman sort of, you know, the you know, exordium partitio. Everybody knows this. Exordium partitio confirmatio. Mm -hmm. um, or what is it? I said everybody knows it and I screwed up. What is it? Exordium <laughs> narratio partitio confirmatio. Right. Refutatio peroration. And um, the stuff gets used. I mean, people say, oh, it's old Roman stuff. Nobody uses that. But if you watch the... Second presidential debate between George W. Bush and Al Gore. Mm -hmm. At the end of Bush's closing statement, he runs out of time. And he says to himself, maybe, or maybe he thought his mic was off. He's like, didn't even get to my peroration. Now, that's George W. Bush using a Roman term from Roman rhetorical theory in a presidential debate in uh, 2000. Right. Uh, 
I don't know what other evidence you need to be like, okay, this is relevant. Mm -hmm. um, it's being talked to by somebody. Uh, whether it's done well or not, I don't know. But right. they're, they're looking at this stuff. Mm -hmm. So, uh, because it works. And um, I've been saying, like, try this organizational pattern out for when you record audio. And I do a lot of audio and video instead of papers in other courses, too, mm -hmm. when they're taught online. Because I feel like that's a really important way to communicate one's findings and research. Like, when you go to the office or you talk to your friends, you don't talk about as much anymore a piece in the New York Times or a piece in the L.A. Times or... Uh, something like that. You always say, did you hear Radio Lab? Or did you hear that podcast? Did you hear the Joe Rogan podcast? Mm -hmm. Or did you hear... So podcasts have become this kind of... Um, they're like the little magazines or like the old newspapers where every city had a newspaper that original reporting. And newsrooms were full of, you know. Mm -hmm. But like there's very little difference between the San Francisco Examiner, the LA Times, New York Times. They're all running the same kinds of stories. Yeah. Um, but podcasts are like kind of like the little magazines back in the day where a new stand in New York would be covered with all these little magazines mm -hmm. of different perspectives and things. And uh, that's kind of where uh, media and journalism is going, I feel. Uh, so it's good to give them some practice in kind of how this is made and how to do it and how to make it sound persuasive and sound good. Because right. then they can participate in that larger audience discourse of where people are like, this looks interesting. I'll listen to this. How do you feel about, I know I speak with a lot of uh, instructors who talk about their online classes and the one thing that they they want to make sure that students are not doing is pausing the video or editing mm. a speech together to make it flow better or mm. you got to get it in one take that's so weird to me yeah i don't get it like i mean if you watch any vlog or any public speech it's highly edited yeah there's cuts there's all kinds of um music and cuts and speed changes uh, because audiences like that. It helps make it more communicative. Mm -hmm. um, I guess, I mean, this speaks more to like what most public speaking instructors are doing, which is teaching a, a fidelity to a weird form that is held up by the university of what a speech ought to be. Right. That doesn't work anywhere else. The classroom speech, we all know what it looks like. Mm -hmm. An intro, it's a rhetorical question, a quote. State your thesis. Give a preview of your three points. Make it three points. Nobody wants to listen to this. <laughs> I don't want to listen to this. Why do you want to listen to this? Um, no one in the world is, everyone, it communicates, all these speeches say the same thing. This is a college assignment I had to do. Right. And immediately the audience is going to say, I'm going to pick something else. Because they have their phone, their iPad, their computer, and they have millions of hours of content that they can look through in seconds and right. find something that will help them uh, pass the time or learn something on their 30-minute drive or whatever, 45-minute drive or whatever right. uh, to work, which we talked about it before we... Yes, recording this. Glad I don't have to do it. Right, yeah, right, right. Um, so, what are we teaching our students to do? Uh, meet our expectations for a form that we've kind of made up of what a speech should look like that communicates to no one about nothing, that has no purchase, that has no engagement value? Or are we trying to teach them how to interact, um, judge, and respond to highly mediated, very well produced texts that? Um, encourage us to turn off our critical thinking and enjoy them right? Uh, and then persuade us that all kinds of things are real that might be unhealthy or bad for us. Uh, so the best thing to do, I mean, again, my sophistic point of view coming out is to teach everyone how to do that. And then you'll have a much more entertaining and interesting public discourse that's going to require a lot more critical acumen, but that's good. And then people will like, be motivated to be like, oh, I don't think that's right. I'm going to push on that. Right. You know, um, uh, so I think um, the pausing and stuff, I mean, I teach it, the editing, 
one of the issues that I'm struggling with is how much of a media editing class should this be? Mm -hmm. um, do I have to teach them how to use Audacity? Mm -hmm. Or I mean, now luckily there are things like Lynda.com and LinkedIn that have pretty affordable uh, video um, solutions of teaching people how to do things with Audacity and teaching people how to edit in a nonlinear video editor. Mm -hmm. There's lots of free ones out there. Most students have an iPhone. They have a very, very powerful nonlinear video editor right on their phone that right. is very easy to use. Mm -hmm. um, but again, you know, what's funny is the students also think this is a class with assignments that have to meet my expectations. So they still come off as assignments a lot of times. And I'm like, we got to get rid of this feeling like this is an assignment. I don't want any sense that this is in it, in your podcast, anything. This was made for anything other than your imagined audience or right. the universal audience you come up with in your inventional process. That's who you're speaking to. Um, if that is hitting the right notes, I'm going to let you know. And say, here's how we can make this even better or more engaging, more interesting to really capture. Um, it's kind of like teaching a, a lot of public speaking instruction is like, Teaching a cooking class with those pla with the plastic food that like a toddler wouldn't have, <laughs> it's kind of what it is. Like you know, I have these little nephews and they're always trying to feed me plastic food when I visit them. <laughs> this is for you. And it's like a plastic hot dog and a plastic cupcake. And that's what a lot of people think good public speaking class looks like. Or teaching a chemistry class where it's just written on little pieces of paper what the chemicals are and you put them in the tube and right. Shake. Let's use the. I mean, the chemistry classes on your campus are using volatile, dangerous mm -hmm. materials that can kill and maim people. And they're like, well, this is how we teach it. We got to use the real stuff. Yeah. Why would public speaking not want to use the real stuff? So yeah, so we were talking about the gender pay gap speech. Mm -hmm. So I say, yeah, go ahead and do it. But uh, the people in the class will push back against it based on their own lived experience. And so it's a real world confrontation between your best evidence on your best day from the sources you trust and people saying, I'm not sure about that. And it, the reaction we usually get, since we're all trained in this idea that facts trump everything and that scientific thinking trumps everything, um, which is a really stupid way to think, um, this leads to frustration. And a lot of times you get a kind of a tense classroom environment where people get kind of angry. And I'm like, okay, let's examine this. Why are we angry? Because the other side is not convinced by what we thought was convincing. Mm -hmm. So how can we change that emotion to something productive? Like what could we do to make this more convincing? And then you get a lot of students like, yeah, but it's just true, which is another bad way to think. But, you know, these are the kind of things that it's our job to push against and peel back and push against and grapple with. And it's, it's a, it makes it a very volatile class in the same way a chemistry class is. But there's no – you just have to kind of think about what your emergency eyewash station is or the equivalent. Right. When the chemicals spill or the thing blows up, what are you going to do? Where's your fire extinguisher? Right. Um, that's the only thing that, you know, you have to kind of think about when you teach it this way. But – the students really like it. They get, they're like, it's very creative. It was very open. We felt like we really had free speech. We don't really feel like we have free speech in other courses, mm -hmm. which I think is really kind of scary. Yeah. Um, and uh, I got to express and imagine and be creative, and I miss it. Right. Like the girl in line. She's like, I miss your class so much because mm -hmm. we got to talk about whatever we wanted. Um, so, yeah. I mean, so that, I think that's a pretty good example of the of what we're talking about, which is um, the topics that um, not having any restrictions on the topics and what it can lead to. And, but I haven't had anybody do, maybe I'm just lucky, or maybe it's teaching in New York City. I haven't had anybody do the full-throated, like, Trump is best, MAGA. Nobody's done that yet. Right. And I think it's because the way I teach it, I think that I do have Trump supporters in my classes. 
I think they realize it's a hard sell, given that there's only two or three of them, and the rest of the other 20 people are pretty left. You know, they're, if they're not supporters of Hillary Clinton, they're pretty left wing. Or you're in New York. So yeah, I mean, right. <laughs> people are pretty. Yeah, yeah, people are pretty liberal here. So I think they realize that might be too hard of a sell, and they choose something else. Maybe that's it. I don't know. Right. I haven't spoken to them. But I have had a couple of people speak in terms of we need stricter immigration laws. And uh, that's because I actually did assign a topic as a because I was doing a learning community, like a, students had the same philosophy, theology, and public speaking course mm -hmm. as an experiment of a dean to increase retention. The theory uh, that we were being that we were testing is if the students felt like they had the same people in three different classes, they could more easily talk to them, express their concerns about the class, and feel more welcome here at the university, and then they would stay. They wouldn't transfer or drop out of school or fail out right. because they're just not prepared for being on their own or something like that. And the data we got back was really telling that it works great. Um, the initiative and the money isn't really there to continue. I'm not doing it right now, but maybe next year we'll do it again. Mm -hmm. um, but um, uh, in that, I always thought public speaking would serve the things the theology and philosophy professors want to do. Right. But uh, I decided that what I would do is assign them a big topic as kind of a test case that everyone does the same speech so we can have some grounding together. And I very rarely do this, but I thought in this case it was essential because they had these other classes together. Mm -hmm. It might work with, they could pull in philosophy or theological readings about the assigned topic. So the topic I assigned was, um, are sanctuary cities appropriate? Mm -hmm. Is that an appropriate policy? And I gave them some material to read and we watched Jeff Sessions talk about it. We watched Bill de Blasio talk about it, give a public speech. Mm -hmm. And uh, we didn't get a lot of variety of, of decisions. We had a couple of people saying that they weren't very good. Uh, but they were very careful about how they phrased it. Mm -hmm. So instead of this full-throated, like, I'm the, the, the avatar of the truth, and here's my flaming sword of facts, and, you know, we got this very adaptable kind of, hey, we're all concerned about immigration, we're all concerned about human trafficking, and we're all concerned about the kind of people we let into this country. That's a real, we should have immigration restrictions. Right. And just because we don't like one part of how immigration is happening, we shouldn't. I was like, that's kind of a clever argument. I mean, people in the audience are like, boo, but, you know. Well, how did you know? the <laughs> majority of the audience, how did they frame the arguments? Was it more, here's my flaming sword? Uh, no, they, well, they were more like, um, here's the uh, story of America, immigration. Mm -hmm. We're all here because someone decided to come here. We're all here because, so they told this really, in Burkean terms, they drew the circumference so wide of like the entire history of the country is people coming here from other places. So why are these people coming here any different than those people? They just didn't come here under the appropriate paperwork. Like, and some people did histories of Ellis Island where they were like trying to figure out what the appropriate paperwork would be. Mm -hmm. Or what's, I mean, this is like, they were like forging new law in the 20th century at Ellis Island and this kind of thing. Right. Especially like the public health service history on that is really fascinating. Like, what do you do with somebody you think is sick? Mm -hmm. we take them, what's the procedure? And they developed that over, over um, the years. Then millions of people come through there yep. in a short amount of time. Um, well, and so I, they, they, I guess some of them did come in with this kind of avatar kind of thing. But it was much more like um, if you want to keep your community safe, support sanctuary cities because immigrants and uh, people who um, are friends with immigrants won't work with police to find real criminals mm. if they think you're going to – if they – uh, think that uh, the local police are going to turn them into ICE. Yeah. And this was backed up by testimony from different police chiefs across the country. So I was like, okay, that's a good piece of research there. Right. 
Um, but the class did have a couple of tense moments where it was like, what, what do we, what do we want to do to control immigration? Should we control it? And how do we stay safe? And there were some people in there like, oh, we should just let everybody in. And some people were like, we shouldn't let anybody in. They're going to take our jobs. Mm -hmm. But at the end of that conversation, people kind of were like a little bit more informed about different positions they could take. There's more than two. Yeah. <laughs> and they also like, um, I think they saw, one of the values of doing, it, of doing that was they saw the variety of different positions one could take on something like, yes. Yeah. Instead of just the speech like, yes, we should have it. <laughs> Bill de Blasio says or whatever. Right. Um, there's a thousand different ways you can say, good idea. And I think that, that at the end of it, they all kind of said, yeah, it was interesting how much variety there was, even though there wasn't any variety. It was kind of a, a weird contradiction. Right. Now, as far as topic selection, we talked about you have these very old um, mm -hmm. like cases mm -hmm. that you've modernized and... Yeah, that's right. Or arguments, or what were those? Yeah, okay, so um, in my interest and obsession with how the Romans taught. I got interested, two summers ago, I got very interested. Like every summer I take on, I'm just kind of a weirdo. I'm like, I'm gonna do my own little reading project and learn something. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and so I was like, I wonder how the, I thought, I, I thought it would be nice to look at how Romans taught speech and how the Romans taught argument and debate. Because I see a lot of similarities between Roman Republic to empire as we have in the United States. I think a lot of people feel that in the air that we're moving from uh, American Republic to American empire. Uh, lots of critical theorists, of course, have said we've already did that, like at the end of World War II or something like that. And I'm sure there's like people who know more than me and people listening to this. I'm not saying that this hasn't happened yet. I'm just saying that there's a feeling that right. maybe we're moving to that. So I thought there might be some nice connections and like, well, how do you teach free expression, free speech and argument uh, against a, a, a very uh, vital, vibrant, active, resourceful, uh, powerful and unafraid to flex state? When the state is like unafraid to flex and uh, wants to enforce its monopoly on uh, violence and money and all these things, what does free expression really mean in that context? And so I was like, I bet the Romans were confronting this in the same kind of cultural way. Um, so we share a lot with them, you know, we're really into like being tough and we're into military stuff and we're into weapons and I mean, there's a lot of similarities. Mm -hmm. um, so. In reading this, I found that most Roman students would encounter these things, uh, the, encounter the exercise of the declamation, declamatio, and that is an old Greek exercise of giving a speech about a legal or cultural question before an audience where you prove that you can make a good argument that Romans would accept, that you can master Roman myth, Roman values, cultural values, and the law in a speech where you take on a very difficult case of something that's kind of not, it's not clear what should happen. And you're assigned to one side of it, and you make the arguments. Uh, of those cases, there are some that are called um, soisore, which are you're persuading a historical figure about what they should do. And then there are some that are called um, uh, uh, controversy. And those are the legal cases. So a lot of these are preserved. Quintilian wrote a lot of them down. Mm -hmm. Seneca the Elder wrote lots of them in his letters that he remembered from school. Cicero has a couple, but it's mostly Quintilian and, and um, Seneca the, um, the Elder. And then uh, we have a number of them that appear in medieval sources that are said to be attributed to Rome that people are still writing about because this is a good way of teaching and practicing Latin, a good, good, persuasive, good sound, like Ciceronian Latin, the highest kind of like really fancy Latin. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so I looked at all this and I'm like, wow, this might be a kind of a cool way to teach. So I was working on rewriting some of these for the modern day. I would take an old case and rewrite it for a modern day situation. Uh, I was working on this and then I was speaking with my former student who's now a instructor at Northeastern, Tim Barr. He's just public speaking there and it's like, look, I'm doing this, I've done these weird things. And he's familiar with it because he's like a Latinist. Mm -hmm. He's like a classical guy. He's like, yeah, 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 I know this thing. What have you got? So I made a Google Doc and shared it. He's like, these are great. So now he started writing them too. So now we have this Google Doc of I think, I think we have about 40 different cases that we can pull from and use with right. a class. And what I use them for is low stakes speaking and uh, invention, argument invention activities. So at the beginning of the class, I'll put one up, I'll have people read it, I'll say, now what I want you to do is um, move to the side of the class of what side you want to be mm -hmm. on this legal question. Who's right? The mother, the father, the kid is suing their dad for something. Who, who is it? <clears throat> um, who do you want to support? And then they can talk to each other and help each other, but they all have to kind of come up with their speech and then right. give a short three or four minute speech in the class. This gets them up and talking and sharing opinions on a common text that is uh, equal playing field. It's new to everybody. Uh, there's no like research involved going to the library or anything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it gets them up and speaking and making arguments based on life experience and what right and wrong is and basically American values, which we all have a big wealth of like, what does it mean to be American? What would American support? What does it mean to have American values? And they all are, are embedded in it and admired in this discourse. And uh, it's a great resource to get them to do basic argument persuasive construction. That's what I use it for. Uh, a couple of times I've done one one day and I say, okay, now I want you to go home, take your argument and find like one or two really good pieces of external evidence that would support your case. Mm -hmm. And they did amazing with that. Uh, one of them was um, that I thought was really amazing a student did was the case was about a young man who um, was raised by his grandfather. His grandfather, he's like now taking care of his grandfather. Uh, grandfather is very old and sick and he has to take this medicine that he's not sure what it is from the doctor. And the grandfather's like, just throw it away. I don't want to take it. I don't like how it makes me feel. But when he's on the medicine, he wants to go take walks. He wants to go meet his friends in the park. He wants to be outside. He right. wants to do stuff. When he doesn't take it, he just sleeps until 3 o'clock and just wants to watch TV in the dark. Mm -hmm. So he's like, okay, I have to deal with this. Should I maybe sneak the food and sneak it into his food? Even though he's expressly said he didn't want to take it. Mm -hmm. And so I said, why don't you go find a piece of evidence and see if you can... Uh, come up with something. So two students, one of them did a great speech on medical ethics and patient rights mm -hmm. and why those are important to uphold even in cases where a patient might be um, doing harm to themselves. And it was a wonderful analysis of why it would be a real breach of trust not only between a grandson and a grandfather but between a caretaker and a patient right. to sneak the food in there. It would be horrible because it would be a violation of the things that we believe are right about uh, bodily autonomy and consent. Uh, the other uh, the other one that was good went from the other side, which was like, he should sneak it in there because according to the evidence he found, the grandfather is most likely suffering from dementia or early Alzheimer's, or Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. So that means he's actually not in a position to be able to consent, that he's actually not making good decisions, and he does need to take the medicine, and it would be wrong for him to believe him to be um, uh, honestly portraying or speaking about uh, what he wants because he might not know what he wants mm -hmm. so it, that's the kind of contrasting thing I got from that um, and I, I think we have a few new ones in there I haven't looked at it in a while I'm kind of like curious to bring it up right now but uh, I don't know if Tim has written any new ones in there 
we have a pretty good collection going, and I, I have a couple of books that have them in there. Mm-hmm. And the Romans had some weird cases. All their cases are about the things that law might not be able to cover, like the status of women, the status of foreign women, the status of freed slaves, their economic and legal status, the status of children who were born between a Roman citizen, a patrician or a plebeian, and a slave. Right. And the status of that person in terms of inheritance. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's lots of that. The status of people who are um, kidnapped by pirates and held for ransom and how ransoms are paid. <clears throat> the status of people who are um, exiled from Rome mm-hmm. for a crime and when they can come back and how they can come back. Uh, and uh, different things about military heroism and talking to the enemy in military. Lots of military trial stuff. And that's pretty much the collection of of declamation topics that I found. One that I remembered, and I, I can't remember what the original one was, but it mm-hmm. was after you had modernized it, and it was about the Wi-Fi. Oh, yeah. Rich Man's Wi-Fi. Rich Man's Wi-Fi, right? This is my take on the most famous of all declamation topics because Cicero talked about it as one he did in school. And in the case at that time is called Poor Man's Bees. Poor Man's Bees is like a declamation case you can find all... You can find into like... I think I found one in the 1400s, 1500s, Italians... Uh, scholars being like, I found a new answer to Cicero on poor man's bees, and they're like writing to each other. It's like it's like a greatest hit, keeps coming back. Right. You know, um, that case is that a poor man who lives in poverty scrapes up enough money to buy a beehive, and makes really, really, really great tasting honey from this beehive. Starts to sell it, buys more beehives. He sets up a little business. He's doing pretty well for himself. Um, some time passes. A patrician, a rich guy, comes over to him and says. Oh, you're the guy who's been ruining my garden. Uh, I spent a lot of money on my garden of all these exotic different kinds of flowers that I've imported, and I can't enjoy my garden at all because your bees are always there and they sting me and they sting everybody. We can't enjoy it. So you owe me the, a majority share of your business because it's my flowers and my expensive garden that's making your your honey business so profitable. Right. So the question put to the students is: uh, Should this should the uh, poor man? have his complete business? Does he owe anything to the rich man? Uh, or does the rich man deserve some compensation for his trouble since he's providing the flowers to the business? Mm-hmm. So I changed it to rich man's Wi-Fi, which is a guy who's like, poor guy, steals Wi-Fi from his neighbor and writes a great app and does a great web-based business. He makes a lot of money and then the neighbor finds out about it and says, well, you owe me money from your app. Mm-hmm. because I'm providing you the Wi-Fi to conduct your business, and I pay for that. Yeah. And now my Netflix movies are only in 1080p and yeah. not 4K because you're slowing my network <laughs> down. suffering over and you're yeah. yeah, you're stealing my <laughs> bandwidth, brah. Um, and so I wrote that one, and that one is pretty popular, but uh, the one that I think, that the grandfather one was they really liked, mm-hmm. and then there's another one they liked. People got really upset about the grandpa one because it hit home. Right. Lots of people have to deal with an older family member suffering with Alzheimer's. So a lot of people, it really hit them in a personal way, and they spoke personally from it, and there was there were some tears and things, but I think that's good. When everybody thinks, you know, I'll be there one day, possibly. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's just a terrifying uh, concept, so it's something that's kind of, like Alzheimer's is kind of a commonplace in the classical rhetorical thing. It's something we all kind of touch by and we can't speak, speak from, and when you bring it up, it brings up a number of different arguments one can make, you know, right. uh, when one's uh, inventing rhetoric. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I... Appreciate you taking the, the time with us today. I, I always ask at the end here, is there anything you'd like that we haven't discussed or that I didn't ask about that you'd like to leave with the audience? Yeah, ask your students what they would like to do when you're teaching public speaking. What do you want to do? Or you can you can do that in a number of different ways. What's your favorite TED Talk? Everybody bring their favorite TED Talk 
Let's watch a little of it and you tell us why it's so good. Yeah. That's a great way to start. Try, you know, talk to your students, ask them what they want. Don't uh, jam them into like some kind of goo or paste into the Plato model of the three-part speech. Like composition gave all that up in like 1969. <laughs> There's still a few vestiges out there, but English composition is way ahead of us in pedagogy. And uh, don't be ashamed of teaching public speaking. Compositionists aren't ashamed of teaching first-year writing. They revel in it. They love it. They find it theoretically rich. Mm -hmm. We need to do that, too, in speech comm rhetoric. Why don't we do that? We think of public speaking as a punishment. It's not it's a, just for the grad students. It's not just for the grad students. The first-year faculty have to pay their dues or whatever. This is like, this is our history, and it's our tradition, and we should be proud of it. We should be really proud of our tradition of teaching people how to master oratory. And we're not, and I think that's more shameful than teaching a full slate of public speaking classes, is for you to be embarrassed to be called a public speaking teacher, which I think should be a point of pride. Uh, and we got to recover that. we got to recover that, and the time is now. That's what I would say. Well, thank you again, Steve. And yeah, no very problem. Very thought-provoking, and maybe we'll, we'll come back, and you can expand on a couple of those yeah, things that right. you said was too long for now. Yeah, always welcome. <laughs> if people want more of a diet of this, they can come to my website, sophist.nyc. Exactly. We'll put a link to that, and we'll... Yeah. we'll put your podcast great as well yeah, yeah. So. they can come here about international debating if they want sounds great it's a little outdated now but <laughs>